Well, this morning we continue our series in the book of Revelation, and we're starting our descent to the final six chapters. And it is vivid, it is devastating, and as you will see, it is the end. The end will have come. Now, uh, those of you joining us at Quakertown, we welcome you. That's where I have been attending, and uh, we're glad you can join us today along with those who are online. Now, I want to show you a little cartoon here. Um, that brings back a lot of memories. People have been saying, he's coming. The Lord is coming. The Lord is coming. Uh, one preacher was telling that story. He's coming. He's coming. And he fell off the stage right into the lap of three older ladies right up front. He said, I am so sorry. I apologize. And they said, don't worry about it. You told us three times you were coming. And... Uh, Yeah, so today we are telling you about how the world will be judged and it will come to an end. But it's not just about the devastation and the judgment that the Lord, who is holy and almighty, is bringing upon a world that's rejected him. It's also about the invitation that he's been giving all through those judgments. Come back, come back to me. And it is the promise, it is the hope of every person who knows Christ and is alive at that time that the Lord will help them. The Lord will persevere with them as they persevere with him. So it's an exciting and very intense passage of Scripture uh, that we're going to look at today. But Revelation chapters 15 and 16 describe what we'll be talking about, the bold judgments, and the end has come. Now, I've got a challenge for you as we begin today. If you're like me, sometimes you're tempted to start making that to-do list of things you got to do next week, the grocery list, or this time of the year, the shopping list. You know, we turn on the news, it's discouraging. It can be depressing. Many of you are facing dilemmas in your own heart, your own mind. You might have family struggles going on. There may be a lot of things that would distract you from these next 20 to 30 minutes together. And I'm going to invite you to just quiet your heart and actually ask the Lord to open you up to some truths that you might say, I am not sure I really like the book of Revelation. It's kind of boring to me, or ho-hum, or others of you are saying, I can't wait for that day. But join me in prayer, and let's ask the Lord to go ahead and have a free course in our life, in our minds right now, okay? Uh, Gracious God, I want to thank you uh, for Calvary Church and for the gospel that has been preached here since the very first day it opened its doors. And I thank you for the kindness of the people that make up this community, all those bags of food and coats and shoeboxes filled with things for children that will go in our area and around the world. It's our way of showing your love to others. And Lord, we're into a passage now today that it'd be hard to concentrate on, hard to keep focused on. And so I pray you'd help each person in earshot of these words today to be able to put it aside for a few minutes and uh, allow your spirit to do something 
significant and powerful in their life. And we'll thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Now, today, just to give you a little bit of a roadmap, we're going to read through most of chapter 15 and 16. And I'm going to do that in pretty much a contiguous fashion. Uh, And I'm going to do it rapidly, and then we're going to spend the bulk of our time with four leading lessons, four things that come out of this passage that ought to affect us today, not just about the future. The future really is made up of a series of todays, and today is one of those. Now, let's have some perspective. In Ephesians chapter 6, you'll notice that Paul is helping the listeners understand this is a cosmic conflict. This isn't just about people fighting people. There is a bigger scene, a bigger agenda, both of the God of this age, which Paul uses to describe the devil, who has been given an opportunity in this particular time in history to deceive the nations. But it's also a time where God is going to vanquish that enemy. He's going to bring an end to the turmoil. What you'll read about in the closing chapters of the book of Revelation, where there's no more pain, no more sorrow, no more tears, where we, when we are with the Lord and conflict is ended, that's preceded by a big conflict. And even today, that conflict rages, whether you see it or not. Listen to what Paul said. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms." So Paul, when he referred to the devil as the god of this age, he said his agenda is to blind the eyes of the unbelieving lest they see the glorious light of the gospel of Christ. That's in 2 Corinthians 4.4, and it just reminds us that is the agenda. Now, I want to put up a graphic that might help us a little bit. Uh, We have been, in these last few weeks, talking about the 21 divine judgments. And as we talked about the sealed judgments, that's it, it's the beginning of the judgment. And as we come to the end today of the bowl judgments, that will be viewed as the completion of the judgment. You'll see that as we read in just a moment. But right now, let's jump into chapter 15 and see something of these seven angels Now, an angel's a messenger. Uh, We're messengers, but these are angelic messengers. And they have seven bowls. Yes, like a cereal bowl, a big cereal bowl. And it's golden. And these seven angels are told to pour it out onto the nations. Why? So that people will turn to God, or their hearts will continue to be hardened, and they'll turn away, and that forever. So let's begin reading in chapter 15, verses 1 through 4. And I'll make a few comments as we go along. I, John speaking here, I, John, saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign, seven angels 
with the seven last plagues. Last, because with them God's wrath is completed. And I saw what looked like a sea of glass glowing with fire, and standing beside the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast and its image and over the number of its name. They held harps given to them by God and sang the song of God's servant, Moses and the Lamb. So this is a song of Moses, which should remind you of the plagues of Egypt, where God said, let my people go, and Moses was the messenger. And it wasn't until that last plague that would really break Pharaoh in the land of Egypt where the Jewish people had been held captive. And you might remember, the last plague was the firstborn of every family would be killed as the angel of the Lord passed over as way of a judgment, because that was the very judgment that Pharaoh said would happen to the Israelites. He said, I'm going to kill the firstborn. And God said, so as you say, so shall it be. And the only relief would be if you would slay an innocent lamb and you'd take hyssop, that's a bush, kind of an ancient paintbrush, dip it in the blood and put it over the doorpost. And as the angel of the Lord passes by, he will see your faith in the blood of that lamb. But as we come to the book of Revelation, it's no longer just about Moses, but it's about the lamb. The one John 129 calls the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And so as we read this actual song, probably to be sung in that day. Listen to how vivid it is. Great and marvelous are your deeds. We've been singing about that all morning. Lord God Almighty, just and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear you, Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. That means without sin. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. You know, throughout the Scripture, the book of Romans, as well as the book of Philippians, reminds us that day is coming when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord unto the glory of God the Father. So it's not a matter of if, it's just a matter of when. So these angels and the heavenly host are singing this song of Moses and the Lamb. God saves his people. God redeems his people. Now, in uh, Matthew 25, it, it says, no man can know the, the day or the hour. That's why since the very resurrection and ascension of Christ, people have been looking for his coming. He's coming. He's coming, right? That could have happened any time, but I'll tell you one thing. We're one day closer to it than we were yesterday or the day before. We're closer. Now, it said you can't know the, the, the day or the hour. The problem is we have figured out the hour, right? We don't know the day, but we do know the hour. 
It's between 1 o'clock and 2 o'clock in the morning when the Lord will return. Isn't that great to know that? <laughs> I, I, I know what you're thinking. Well, it's, it's a little more technical than that because there are 24 time zones around the earth, and so somewhere it will be between 1 and 2. Sorry, that, that was cheap. Sorry. We're going to jump right back in. Let's pick up in verse 5. After this I looked, and I saw in heaven the temple, that is the tabernacle of the covenant law, and it was opened. Out of the temple came seven angels with seven plagues. They were dressed in clean, shining linen and wore golden sashes around their chest. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls filled with the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter in or could enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. So let's look at those bowls, right? There's seven of them. The scripture can speak well for itself. I'm just going to read those in their context. Here we go, verse 1. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go, go, pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. The first angel went and poured out his bowl on the land, and ugly festering sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. Next week we're going to talk about that, by the way. The second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it turned into blood like that of, the de of a dead person, and every living thing in the sea died. Now, those of you that have been with us through the series, you remember during the seal judgments, uh, a fourth of all things died. Then during the trumpet judgments, a third died, and now everything in the sea is dead. The third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. Then I heard the angel in charge of the water say, you are just in these judgments, O Holy One. You who are and who were, for they have shed the blood of your holy people and your prophets, and you have given them the blood to drink as they deserve. And I heard the altar respond, Yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. God is able to have perfect harmony between love and judgment. In fact, logically, it would make sense to us that a holy God cannot allow sin to go unchecked. We know from our own human experience, when lawlessness is allowed to run rampant, innocent people are hurt. We know from this passage there have been martyrs, lots of them, who have died because they did what we read earlier. They took their stand against this evil world and system that hurts so many. Now the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and the sun was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were seared by the intense heat, and they were crushed, or cursed rather, 
the name of God, who had control. God's not out of control. He's not having a temper tantrum. God, who had control of these plagues, but they refused. Notice who's refusing. They refused to repent, to turn away from him. Last night and tonight, we're experiencing a, a solar storm, right? And it affects some communications. The magna or the corona of the sun is with greater intensity and more frequency now sending these solar storms our way. We're not talking about just a solar storm. We're talking about the sun raging to where there's no place to hide. There's not enough air conditioning. There's not enough uh, sunscreen. There's not enough aloe lotion to soothe the scorching that the fourth bowl is bringing. Number five, the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and its kingdom and was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongue in agony and cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores. But there again, they refused to repent of what they had done. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. Then they gathered the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. So there have been great battles fought throughout history in the valley of Megiddo. Having looked over into that valley, jet airplanes flying just below the rim, back and forth, back and forth. It's lush and fertile. And uh, 18 cuttings of alfalfa in a year. That's how fertile it is. And the scripture will go on to say that blood will run up to the length of, or the height of a horse's bridle. All the nations of the world are converging on Israel. They're in the Holy Land. And the Euphrates River dries up so they can bring their equipment and their people across on dry land to converge for this great and final battle. Now the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, it is done. Seventh bowl, last judgment, it is done. For some of you who have been around the scripture some, that might bring back to mind something from John 19 and verse 30, when Jesus hung on the cross, not for his sins, but for ours. He was the lamb to take away the sins of the world. And when he breathed his last, what was the words that accompanied it? It is finished. Redemption has been sealed. It's now offered to all who will put their trust and believe in him, right? So now we come to not only the end of the invitation, the opportunity that Jesus offered up, the new and living way, the opportunity to, to live a life in harmony with God, to live a life not of fear, but of hope. We come to the end 
There is no more opportunity. Like the ark where God waited patiently and warned repeatedly. It says in the book of Genesis that God shut the door on the ark. And so it is that God will drop the curtain on the opportunity that people will have to repent and turn away from their sin, but turn unto God. It's one thing to turn away from that which is killing us spiritually. It's another thing then to turn fully to God. That opportunity will come to an end. Now, when we read in this seventh angel, it is done. Then came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a severe earthquake. No earthquake like it has ever occurred since mankind has been on earth. So tremendous was the quake. Every island fled away, and the mountains could not be found. From the sky, huge hailstones, each weighing about 100 pounds, fell on people, and they were cursed, and they cursed God on account of the plague of hail, because the plague was so terrible. So these seven bulls, you'd have to agree with me, that's pretty terrible. It's devastating. But the end has come. You know, the 21 judgments, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls, it's, it's like a telescope. They go from intense to unbelievably intense, to complete devastation. So as each of those 21 judgments occur, it's worse and worse. And with it, the compelling invitation. But you could see what happens some people blame God and shake their fist at him, right? So what should we do? You know, in our series, we've been able to see from the different lenses, very good people, very smart people, have different views on Revelation. It's different than the rest of the Bible that's historic in nature. We can do what we call an exegesis, lead the truth out of it. The book of Revelation it's such picturesque language. It's so unusual to us that it's not taught regularly and clearly in other places. So we've got to be humble and we have to be tolerant of people that have different views than ours. And we don't have to have a view with one exception. There's almost universal agreement. These are not regional historical events. They have parts of that. But when we come to this portion, everybody is in agreement. This is the end. This is how it will end. So we might not know all the intricacies of this wonderful book as it's unfolded, but when we start the descent into those last six chapters, this is the end. The end has come. Now, what do you do with that, really? You go home, oh, wow, that was so wonderful, so encouraging today. God's going to destroy the world. Yippee! I doubt that will be your response. It's not mine either. In fact, I'm kind of sad. But I'm not scared. If I didn't know Christ, I probably would be scared. I'd probably be wondering, what in the world is this about, right? 
But there is a comfort in knowing that God controls the outcome. He is called the what? The alpha, that's the beginning, and the omega, the end. God who controls all things at all times has not lost control of this world that he created to bring glory to himself and to be a blessing to show himself, reveal himself to others. So here are four lessons I'd like for you to take with you as we prepare to go today. Number one, angels go, and they deliver messages. Now, you might not believe this, but you're an angel. Remember those pastors to the churches in Asia Minor, the seven churches of Revelation? Those were real people. They were real messengers. There are heavenly beings called angels, but what do they do? They bring messages. And then there are earthly angels, messengers, witnesses. And we are supposed to be bringing both good news and warning. There's a balance. The good news is the gospel. Jesus Christ died for our sins and rose again. And whoever trusts in him, puts their faith in him, invites him, takes that gift of salvation, God promises, I'm moving in. And that salvation works itself out as God begins to transform you into the very likeness of his son. Paul wrote it this way. How can they hear in one whom they have not believed? And how can they believe unless one goes and tells them the truth? In fact, he says, and how can they hear without somebody preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they're sent? And as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. So make no mistake, Acts 1.8 says, get going. You got a job. You got a message to tell. And I hope that you'll take that seriously, especially as we're coming into this holiday season. A lot of you will be around family and friends that you don't see that often. My guess is more time will be spent strategizing what are we having, what will be the dessert, what game's going to be on TV, uh, how can we avoid spending more time with them than we need to, what's our signal to know it's time to go, all of those things. How about a strategy to say, how do we let the love of Christ Jesus show through us? Because that's how all men know we're his disciples, right? By the love that we show each other. How about a strategy of how do we work the gospel into our conversation? Not because we're trying to polarize the room around religion, but doesn't the scripture tell us there's a warning? In fact, it says it this way in Mark 8. Two questions. What good is it if somebody gains the whole world yet loses their soul? And there are some people, they, that's their game. they got to get all that they can out of life. But the real question is, well, if they gain all of that and lose their soul, what have they gained? They've gained nothing. But it's not the first question that really gets us. It's the second one when Mark records, what would somebody give in exchange for their soul? The answer is reversed, right? They'd give everything. You can think you have it all. You can think you have security. 
You can think you've prepared for all scenarios. But if you can't answer that question, all of that as we just read will be consumed in more. Don't make that mistake. No wonder Paul says, the Apostle Paul, in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 2, today, today is the day of salvation. Or as the Hebrew writer says, how will we escape if we neglect this so great salvation? We won't. That's the point. So just to be real practical with you today, uh, when I was first coming into being exposed to the gospel, it all seemed a little fuzzy to me. Like, what does that mean? Well, let's be real clear with you today. When God begins to pique your interest and begins to stir your heart and you begin to crave and want that which God is offering, that you want to surrender yourself to him, his love, his protection. When, when you get to that point... You can be assured God's working in your life. He's stirring. And I encourage you, don't neglect that. Now, this may be the first time you've heard that, or maybe you've heard it so many times, it's gone blank for you. Don't leave today without getting that journey started. There's lots of people here that would help you, hundreds of people, a thousand people that could help you today. Don't don't leave wondering or fuzzy. For me, it was May 10th, 1973. I came to the point where, boom, it was clear. The fuzziness was gone. The mystery had been revealed that I had to put my trust in Christ alone. Not in me, not in the things of the world, but in Christ. So angels go and they deliver messages. I hope you'll do that. Uh, Secondly, persecution brings purity to those who persevere, and judgment to those who do not. And so, you know, throughout Scripture, you find that people went through fiery trials. Peter says, don't think it's strange when you're persecuted. To young Timothy, the apostle wrote, in these last days, people will turn from God. But I invite you to turn to him. In fact, listen to how Paul describes it. Does it sound like today to you? He says to Timothy, but mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, lovers of good, not lovers of good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. Does that sound like our generation? Well, I got news for you. Really, every generation has thought that. Why? Because it's true. Every generation has those that will turn away from God. But as we go through trials, and believe me, some of you have been through trials, whether it's divorce, uh, whether it's an addiction, whether it's a family member who has you know, just brought havoc and you're wondering, what should we do? What can we do? Some of you have had job loss. 
Some of you have experienced the pains of losing loved ones. Those trials can and will refine you if you let them. Instead of, God, how could you? God, help me. Make me better, more tender as a result of these trials. The judgment is not for God's people. The judgment is for those that reject him. Thirdly, God is as just as he is patient. God must have justice or he ceases to be God. But he is patient. He's long-suffering. All throughout the scripture, you see where God sent prophets and warned the people and invited them. You read the story of Jonah and Nineveh. You think about the Babylonians and the Assyrians. You think about all the various times that Israel was sent into exile. Why? Because justice was important. But God always gave them an opportunity. The name Bob Ingersoll. I don't know if any of you remember that. Uh, probably most of you are not friends with Bob. He lived from 1833 to 1889. Um, but his father was one of the great preachers of Europe. And Bob Ingersoll himself was a brilliant man. Not just talking about an infidel that had no time for anybody and was narcissistic. This was a man who was brilliant in his day. But he rejected the faith of his father. He rejected the gospel of the New Testament. And so he get, got to the place he was doing lectures all over the world. And he was famously quoted as taking a pocket watch out of his pants and he'd put it in his hand. And to quote him, he said, All right, folks, I'll give God a chance to prove he exists that he is the Almighty. I challenge him here and now to strike me dead within five minutes. And then there'd be silence. Well, one minute. Where are you, God? Two minutes. Three minutes. Four minutes. Five minutes. And you click that watch, close, and you would see, see there? There is no God. And that would be the conclusion. And one person said to another, wow, he really taught us something tonight. He really proved his point. And one person said, yeah, yeah, he did prove a point. He demonstrated that even the most defiant sinner cannot exhaust the patience of the Lord in just five minutes. <laughs> and he's right. And then lastly, uh, we have hope in this life and the life to come. You know, Paul said, if we who believe in Christ are wrong, we should be the most miserable people on the planet. But if there is a resurrection of Christ, there will be a resurrection of all people. In this life, in the life to come, we have hope. We have purpose. Um, some of you will recognize where this sign appears in a local restaurant. If you do, tell me afterwards. Um, it's in a bathroom, by the way. But it's do not flush certain things. And then paper towels and Q-tips. Goldfish and other small animals 
unpaid bills and overdue library books and hopes and dreams. You know, with the pressure all around us today, I'm afraid some of us have developed a negative narrative about who we are and how precious we are to God. We got this voice in our head that wants to demean who we are, how loved and how important we are as God's messengers. Do you know that God can save to the uttermost? You're not a lost cause. The person you love that's a mess, they're not a lost cause. You might say, I'm too far gone. Let me illustrate it this way. Ephesians says that he cleanses us from all of our sins. Hebrews says he saves to the uttermost. As we close, I'm going to ask you to do something. It might feel a little freaky, but don't make it that way. It's not intended to be mystical or magical. Um, I'm going to ask you just to bow your heads and close your eyes so that you can be private in your own mind. Will you do that for just a moment? Now, I want you to bring up in your mind the worst sin you ever committed, the worst thing you ever did, the worst thing you ever said, the meanest or most despicable thing you've ever done. And then I want you to agree with God. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. All means all, all the time. And that's all that all means. Now, that sin that you have in your mind was that future when Christ died 2,000 years ago? Yes, it was. Is there any sin that God cannot forgive you of? No. How do you get forgiven? By trying to pay it back with good deeds? No. By trusting in Christ and asking for his forgiveness. Gracious God, the words we just spoke cannot be described in a way other than just purely amazing. That your grace could extend to us, sinful and rebellious as we are. That you would call us to go. That you would show us that through our trials, we can be made pure and better, refined like gold. That you are patient. And you are wooing us before it's too late to turn to you. And Lord, we don't want to wait till the last minute. We want our life to count and be full and joyful now because we have hope in this world and in the life to come because you can forgive all sins. You, 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 God, are amazing. And your grace blows us away. So God, receive our thanks. Sharpen us today as we look into that lens of revelation and see that the end is coming. And we'll thank you in Christ's name, amen.